Before we read our text for this evening, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that you love us and care for us, that you supervise our lives and you oversee everything that happens so that uh, everything takes place according to your plan, and we know that is a good plan. We do thank you for the care that you have demonstrated toward us all, not simply in making provision for our material needs, but you have made provision for our eternal needs as well by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. We pray that we might value him in a way that we ought, that we might see um, how important his work should be to us, and therefore how important his word should be to us, that we become more diligent students of it, and we might let it take uh, hold of our lives and control us we might live in a way that glorifies you. We ask you that you would use this hour together tonight toward that end, that we would understand your word better and more properly serve you and faithfully worship you every day of our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's turn to Hebrews 5. And I'm going to pick up right where we left off last time, which will be at the 11th verse. And I'll read um, down into the sixth chapter, and then we'll go back and start expositing this. Okay, at Hebrews 5.11, and hear God's word. Of whom we have many things to say, and heart of interpretation, seeing ye are become dull of hearing. For when by reason of the time you ought to be teachers, you have need again that someone teach you the rudiments of the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of solid food. For everyone that partaketh of milk is without experience of the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for full-grown men, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Wherefore, leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Christ, let us press on unto perfection, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the teaching of baptisms and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do, if God permit. For as touching those who were once enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, then fell away. It is impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the land which hath drunk the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meat for them, for whose sake it is tilled, receiveth blessing from God. But if it beareth thorns and thistles, it is rejected, and nigh unto a curse, whose end it is to be burned. And we'll stop our reading at that point and go back to chapter 5, verse 11, and begin our discussion at that point. The author begins verse 11 by saying that he has much to say concerning the priesthood of Christ, as it belongs to the order of Melchizedek, of whom, or about which, you could translate it as well, 
of whom we have many things to say of this priest after the order of Melchizedek or of Melchizedek himself perhaps it's an important topic that he wants to discuss and like many a frustrated preacher or teacher uh, the writer here says he is loaded with valuable information which can't be delivered he's in the position of uh, I think many pastors who would like to instruct their congregations in the deeper things of God's word but as he says here you won't do any good because you're dull of hearing I have much to say to you you get the impression that we're not going to hear it and when he does come back to the order of Melchizedek later in the high priesthood of Christ I don't think he delivers all that he says that he could because he has to explain already that what he is going to say is hard to explain or he's in my translation it says it is hard of interpretation but you have to understand that the reason the high priesthood of Christ is hard to explain to these people is not because of the subject matter itself as though it belonged to some kind of esoteric mystery it was common in the ancient world for um, there to be uh, esoteric uh, cults or groups of people um, you know what esoteric teaching is or how that word is used over against exoteric teaching these cults distinguish they called it the exoteric and esoteric <coughs> exoteric is that which is external that which is for outsiders and initiates to the group but esoteric is for the inner circle it's the secret mysteries that uh, only the advanced only the, um, the true blue can understand and uh, the Gnostic cults of the ancient world um, especially pushed the idea of a secret subject matter uh, and to divulge the secret is much more than just a playful ruining of a club's um, little game like we might have in the modern world I mean, to divulge a secret was to bring yourself under the curse of whatever fates or powers there are in the universe is very important thing. but the author is not into any of that although some commentators have tried to force that on the text here he doesn't say it's hard of interpretation because it's esoteric and nor does he take the blame saying because I'm such a poor teacher you know there are some things which um, I understand well enough to follow someone's discussion or to go out like turn on the lights but I couldn't give a lecture on the subject I'm just not you know adept at that sort of thing but he doesn't say this is hard to interpret because he's not a good teacher he explicitly and categorically lays the blame on his hearers he says it's going to be hard for me to explain all this that I'd like to tell you because of your spiritual state and he describes that spiritual state as being dull of hearing now the author is not um, he's not suggesting that they are in this state in the nature of the case as though they were intellectually ungifted now that would be a, a rather harsh thing the author might be thought to be saying you know you people are really just so slow you guys just never did well in school I guess 
And that's why I can't teach you all that I want to. That is not the problem. And how do you know that? Can you tell me what word tips you off to that, that the author is not saying this is in the nature of the case? Bob? No. Become. That's right. You have become such as are dull of hearing. He doesn't say you're just naturally dumbos. Because you're just, you know, you just don't have minds good enough to do theology. And the reason I want to draw that distinction very sharply and emphatically tonight is that I'm afraid that there is an idea abroad in the Christian church that theology is for eggheads. And that solid teaching is only for those who are interested in Ph.D. work. And that everybody else is just supposed to get along with, you know, much less. And the author here does not say, you know, I'm so frustrated, I can't tell you all these good things that I know because I'm so much smarter than you. Or I'm so much more educated than you. Or you are, by nature, so dull of hearing. He says you have become dull of hearing. The suggestion is that every Christian should be able to do the kind of theology the author wants you to do unless you let your spiritual state lapse. And so that word become is very important. Of whom we have many things to say and heart of interpretation, seeing ye are become dull of hearing. They have drifted into a slack and inattentive attitude toward the revelation of God. An attitude which has adversely affected their capacity for solid instruction. Because they have fallen back and they've become lazy and, and uh, uh, flabby, spiritually speaking, they are not able to understand these things, but they should be able to understand them. And, you know, we can't help but stop and maybe say a few things about the state of the, uh, the doctrinal state of the Christian church in our own day. Um, in our own congregation, we have an extraordinary emphasis upon doctrine, upon biblical exposition, upon matters of truth and application, so that uh, you know we may not think that things are as bad as they are, but you really need to look around you at the, at the state of the Christian church. What kind of doctrine is taught? Let's start on the TV. Okay? What kind of talk, a doctrine is taught on the TV? Well, for, for the most part, no doctrine. It's a matter of pride. We don't teach doctrine. What do we teach? We don't want theology. We want Jesus, right? That's so embarrassing. Because I think even unbelievers read, you know, can hear that and say, well, certainly you must have some doctrine about this Jesus. I mean, that's what you're talking about. I mean, why are you taking up so much airtime if you don't have any teaching to, you know, relate to us? But then you have these people who tell us they have no teaching, you know, no creed but the Bible, that sort of thing. So on the TV you get that. But then there are those who won't fall into the mistake of saying they have no doctrine, who do try to give some teaching, some instruction. What kind of instruction do you see? Have you ever watched the TV evangelists and teachers? I mean, it's just pitiful. It's, it's just um, pablum, 
And the thing that's uh, amazing, and, and that's if that's pathology. And then they'll get real detailed. They'll bring out their maps and charts and timetables and stuff like that. That everyone's supposed to understand with a lot of detail. But, uh, you know, in terms of the fundamental doctrines of the deity of Christ and the resurrection and uh, predestination or regeneration or sanctification, any of these major doctrines, nothing. Passing illusion at best. And it's just repeated over and over again. Okay, so that's on the TV. How about local um, Baptist church? Or local Lutheran church? I mean, some some of these churches, the higher liturgical churches, don't even emphasize preaching of the Word. So if, if you get a 10 to 12 minute devotional, you know, in, in the midst of that high liturgy, then you're doing well. And it's usually something that is a, a fairly a personal comforting or a, a personal exhortation and challenge sort of thing. There's not a great deal of meat and solid instruction there. If you turn away from your high liturgical churches to something closer to our own experience, what do you think our local Bible churches and uh, uh, ED3 churches and uh, Baptist churches are getting? Well, it's not a great deal of doctrine. It's basically a salvation message over and over and over again. This is deplorable. I don't say that because we're in the OPC and we're so much better than everybody else. We need to understand the Word of God is talking specifically to that. When people cannot bear sound teaching, when they cannot get into solid doctrine, the church is in a terrible condition. We are dull of hearing. In fact, uh, if we look at that expression, dull of hearing, and reflect on it a bit, I think we'll see that the author was writing to people who could uh, very well be likened, even as we today, I think, could be likened to the state of Old Testament Israel in its own spiritual inertia. Let's turn to some Old Testament passages and look at this for a few minutes. Uh, Jim, would you look up Ezekiel 12.2? And Marilyn, could I get you to look up Jeremiah 6.10? And Alan, Zechariah 7, verses 10 and 12. Julie, Matthew 13, verses 13 to 15. Terry, Matthew 15.8. Scott, Matthew 23.16. Paul of John 3, verses 3 and 9, and Doug, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 14 and 15. Uh, Ron, Matthew 12, verses 24, 31 and 32. Stacy, John 1, 11. Um, Gail, John 19, verses 12 to 15. And uh, Willie, Matthew 21, verses 38 to 45. That'll keep us going for a while. Huh? Let's see if we can go through these. Uh, the state of Old Testament Israel in its own spiritual dullness and inertia is described in Ezekiel 12, 2. Son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see, but they do not see, and ears to hear, but they do not hear where they are the people. You know, it's that dull of hearing in the sense that they have ears to hear, but they don't hear. Just like they have eyes to see, but they don't really see. 
Jeremiah 6.10. And Zechariah 7, 11 and 12. But they refused to hearken and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts like adamant lest they should, like adamant, lest they should hear the law and the word that the Lord of hosts sent by his spirit to the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. See, this was a condition of Old Testament Israel. The prophets, three of them now we've looked at, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Zechariah. The prophets indict the people because they say, you're dull of hearing. You have ears, but you can't hear. You've stopped your ears against the word of God. And this condition was especially evident. This dullness was especially evident when God's own Son came into the world. Because Jesus picks up on that Old Testament indictment. Notice what he says in Matthew 13, verses 13 to 15. Jesus uses this to explain the rejection that is coming from the Jews of his overtures to them as a Savior. Jesus says, the reason I teach them in parables is so that the condition that Isaiah spoke of will become evident in their case. That they have ears, but they don't hear. Eyes, but they don't see. Their hearts are dull. They are not really prepared to respond to God's word obediently. Matthew 15.8 Jesus speaks of the religion of the scribes and Pharisees and he says they can say the right words they draw nigh with their mouth but their heart is far from them they are dull spiritually Matthew 23.16 Woe unto you, blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, he is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a dead. Yeah, we can get into the the example of the gold and the swearing and the temple and so forth uh, some other time. What's important here is how Jesus refers to the leaders, the religious leaders, those who were uh, in the highest position in terms of uh, instruction in the Jewish faith in those days, and he calls them blind guides. And then an interesting combination of terms, how can you guide if you're blind? They have eyes, they have mouths, but they are dull. They don't really see. John 3, verse 3. not have enough there. And Jesus says, how can you be a teacher in Israel and not understand these things? Yes, verse 10. Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Isn't that amazing? 
That, that, that's enough, because my point is, here is a leading teacher among the Jews in that day, Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him something that he considers very elementary, something about regeneration. You must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, Huh? What are you talking about? And Jesus says, You are a leader of the Jews, a teacher among them, and you don't understand these things. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 14 and 15. But their minds were blinded, for until the same remained the same veil, and taken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil was done away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses read, the veil was upon their heart. And so here again, another image of blindness upon the heart. The veil is upon the heart. They don't understand the reading of Moses or the preaching of Christ because they're just dull of hearing. So from Old Testament throughout the New Testament, the Gospels, even into the Epistles, here is this uniform figure of speech characteristic of the Jews. They are dull of hearing. They can't see. They don't understand these things. And it was because of that dullness in their spiritual condition that Israel was unwilling to keep covenant with God. Israel blasphemed the Holy Spirit which was working through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And for that apostasy there was no pardon. Matthew 12, verses 24, 31. So Jesus says what these men have just done in blaspheming the work of the Spirit through me is an unpardonable sin. It will never be forgiven. That's interesting because I think you know, don't you? We're coming up to a discussion of that very thing in Hebrews chapter 6. Dullness of hearing, dullness of heart, spiritual dullness in general, whatever word you want to use for that figure of speech, is what was characteristic of the Jews. And for that reason, when Jesus appeared, they wouldn't accept him. They rejected him in a way for which they had no excuse whatsoever. It wasn't out of ignorance. They knew this was the working of God's Spirit. So they were blaspheming the Spirit when they said that about Jesus performing miracles. And so Israel utterly rejected the Son of God and lost its position as God's people. Israel ceased to be God's Son, as it was called in the Old Testament. John 1, 11. John's categorical um, denunciation of the Jews that Jesus came to his very own people and they wouldn't receive him. And so they turned away the Son of God. John 19, verses 12 to 15. And then Pilate tried to test him to the truth. But the Jews kept silent. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And Pilate heard this. He brought Jesus out and sat, sat him down at the judge's seat at the, at the place known as the stone Haven, which is in the area of the 
the day of the preparation of Passover about the sixth hour. Very few things, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shall take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Pilate, Pilate handed him over not one of the most painful passages in all of God's word. Shall I crucify your king? And the Jews' response, he's not our king. We have no king but Caesar. So, utter rejection of the Son of God. And in response, God, of course, rejects the Jews. Matthew 21, verses 38 to 45. But when the vine growers saw the Son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds of the proper season. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whom whoever it falls, it will shatter him like dust. And so Jesus is the rejected cornerstone, but in the end, of course, he's also the stumbling stone the Jews. Their rejection of him is but indicative that they have been rejected of God. Now why am I going through this? You need to see that what the author of Hebrews is doing at the end of chapter 5 and beginning of chapter 6 is rooted in the history of God's covenant of dealing with his people. And what we see is this pattern. Persistent spiritual dullness. One leading, secondly, to deliberate rejection of God's Son. By deliberate, I mean, you know, with full knowledge and hardened heart, rejection of God's Son, which, three, God treats as unpardonable apostasy and rejects those who reject His Son. And so you have spiritual dullness leading to deliberate rejection of God's Son, which is treated as unpardonable apostasy. That's the history of the Jews, as we've read it, and, of course, I've only touched on the surface of these uh, passages already. And what the author is doing in Hebrews is telling the new covenant people of God, the nation that's supposed to be producing the fruit that Old Testament Israel didn't, that new people to whom the kingdom of God has been given, he's telling them, God will treat you the same way. Your persistent spiritual dullness will lead to a rejection of God's Son in a deliberate way which will be treated as unpardonable apostasy. And that's exactly the development we see in the end paragraph of chapter 5 and the first two paragraphs of chapter 6. And I hope that will help you uh, see that the author is not just jumping into this Calvinist-Arminian debate, you know, and, and uh, trying to do something theologically there. He's uh, talking covenant history. You have to realize this is the way God deals with his people. Well, let's come back to verse 12 now. 
He has said that he has many things to say. They're hard to interpret because these people have become dull of hearing. And that dull of hearing is something to worry about. That's where Israel, you see, was not able to see. And they rejected God's Son. And therefore, were unpardonable. Uh, their apostasy was unpardonable in God's sight. Now verse 12. For when by reason of the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need again that someone teach you the rudiments of the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of solid food. He says, by this time, by this time you ought to be teachers. That uh, phrase, by this time, indicates that there is a considerable space between the time of their conversion and the time of the writing of this epistle obviously, or else it wouldn't make much sense to make reference to it. And uh, so let's learn from this that God keeps track not only of our present level of spiritual maturity, but also of how responsible we have been in the use of our time and opportunity in getting there. God's not unmindful of that. And he doesn't just you know, look at, well, okay, what have you accomplished? He also says, but you see, in the time that you've had, you should be here or there. He, has, uh, he takes account of that. Progress is expected in our spiritual lives, and it is, uh, it's taken for granted by God that you're going to progress. And so when you don't, he sees where you could have been, and you aren't, and he says, well, by this time you should be here in your spiritual life. And in the case of these readers, by this time, he says, you ought to be teachers. Now, it's important that we notice the author is talking here about teaching function, not teaching office. Now, I want to explain what that distinction means, and then I'd like you to help me see why um, that is an important distinction to be drawn here. There's a difference between ministerial function and ministerial office in general. Let's talk about what the New Testament calls diaconal service. We read the New Testament, we see that each one of us is to be a servant of the other. Each one of us is to wait on tables for one another. That's literally what the, what the word means. We're all to do diaconal service. Nevertheless, there are some who lead the way in doing diaconal service, and the rest of the community, the rest of the body of Christ, looks to those individuals to guide them in their diaconal service. And they are given the office of deacon. They are ordained and set aside as the leaders in that area, as the recognized leaders in diaconal service. Likewise, um, we're all supposed to um, evangelize. We're all supposed to teach. We're all supposed to minister to one another. But that doesn't mean we're all supposed to have the office of evangelist or teacher or ministry, pastor. It's not inappropriate for you to have a compassionate pastoral attitude toward your fellow believers. But that doesn't mean that you have the formal recognized office of authority of pastor. Okay, so you understand the difference between function and office? All Christians have these functions in common but when you are especially gifted in a certain area, diaconal service, pastoral preaching, or whatever it may be, then you may also hold the office. Now, I've heard some people 
uh, suggests that the author wants everyone, by this verse, the author of Hebrews wants everyone to seek the teaching office in the church. He says, by this time you should all be teachers. Using teacher here as a formal title rather than as a function. You know, instead of teaching those who are younger in the faith and instructing one another um, in that informal way, the, uh, the interpretation that I don't agree with suggests that it's the formal office of teacher that everyone should have by this time. Now, that doesn't fit into New Testament teaching, though. Let's look at James 3.1. Uh, perhaps I can get Bob to read that. And, um, and Al, could you read uh, after that 1 Corinthians 12.29? First of all, James 3.1. My brethren, do not mean that for knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation for only the judgment. Yes, and uh, I, I, you have the King James translation? Okay. So, right. Don't be many masters. The Greek is don't be many <coughs> teachers, technically. Don't many of you be teachers. Well, now, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? On the one hand, you have the author of Hebrews saying, by this time you all should be teachers. James says, but don't many of you be teachers. Or consider 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? Yeah, now, these are rhetorical questions, the implied answer being, no. no. Not all are apostles. Not all are teachers. And so we have New Testament categorical, New Testament warrant for saying that not everyone is supposed to uh, be a teacher in the formal sense. Not everyone has had the office of teacher in the Christian church. James and Paul agree very uh, clearly on that point. And so I read Hebrews 5.12 as saying, by this time in your Christian experience, um, you should all be in the position of functioning to help those who are younger in the faith. We should all be able to give some instruction to those who uh, aren't as far along as you are in the Christian faith. But these readers were so far from being able to edify those <clears throat> who were at an elementary level in the faith that the author says they themselves needed again to be taught in this terrible expression, the first principles of God's word. It's not, the expression is not so terrible, but what it tells you about them is so terrible. They need again to be instructed, and actually the, in Greek it literally says the rudimentary principles of the beginning of God's Word. They don't even get to chapter 1 in their theology textbooks. They've got to learn the ABCs before they can even get to the first principles. That's how bad they've become. They need to be taught the very ABCs of the Christian faith. And this the author calls milk. And he tells us that milk is the only suitable diet for someone whose immature spiritual condition is that of a child. He uses the word child now. These are not flattering expressions. You need milk. You're babies, he says. Uh, literally, those who cannot speak is the word he uses for child. Continued use of baby food in the Christian life indicates arrested development, indicates that they have become spiritual 
weaklings. And uh, see, we have kind of a, a light-hearted thrust when we use this word, but maybe the word today is wimps. They are spiritual wimps. They can't talk. They need milk. They're just babies. They have to be taught again the ABCs of the first chapter of Christian theology. Here, uh, milk stands in contrast to solid food, uh, as it does also in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 and 2. I think we'll just skip reading that, but you may want to note that in your notes. Paul also indicts the Corinthians, because he says, I want to give you solid food, but you need milk. Now, what is the um, solid food? Well, it's advanced doctrine, sound doctrine. And I stop and think about uh, what I said earlier concerning the general state of the Christian church and maybe by comparison the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has put some emphasis upon doctrine. And on the other hand, I also serve on the Candidates and Credentials Committee of our Presbytery. And I am um, disappointed and uh, in some senses appalled at how little our seminarians and ministerial candidates know when they come to us. Uh, it, it's not always the case, and I'm glad for that, but in, in far more cases than ever should be, we have men who are at the verge of being ordained to ministerial office who are still struggling with the elements of Christian theology that they should have down. I mean, they should be just way down the line from this point. Now, if someone in my position who sees, and I'm kind of at the bottleneck of men coming into the ministry in our presbytery, if I see that we're at a weak stage even with our teachers, then of course, by extrapolation, you can imagine what that means about the general state of their congregations, right? I can't expect that those congregations are going to be full of people who understand the intricacies of Christology and sanctification that these men themselves don't understand those things. And so the author says we should be in a position of having solid food now, not just milk. In verse 13, For everyone that partakes of milk is without experience of the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. We're going to learn something further about those who are spiritually undeveloped believers at this point. What we learn is not just that they're not able to tolerate strong doctrine, but they are, notice this expression, unskilled in the word of righteousness, or unexperienced in the word of righteousness. And two lessons can be taken from this. First of all, notice that the word of God is um, described as containing instruction in righteousness. Turn to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And Pat, is it your turn to read? Mm -hmm. All scripture is inspired by God and promised all for teaching for truth, for correction, and for training righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice that the word of God offers training or instruction in righteousness 
that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. The Bible is our source of ethics. And that's why in verse 14 uh, of our chapter, Hebrews 5, the author goes on to speak of discerning good and evil. The Bible trains us to discern good and evil. And that's a very important lesson. Just in the simple fact that the Bible is identified as being the word of righteousness that trains us to discern good and evil. And what is the lesson we learn from that? Well, that we need to rely upon the Bible for our ethical guidance. We all would say that. But I am shocked. When I look at the common practice in my own life, in your lives, people that I know, I don't think that we get down to reading the Bible for ethical guidance. We're much more inclined on the spot to make an ethical decision based on what kind of the run of the mill is, you know, the way things are going in the world. You look around you and you see the way, the way most people, at least people you consider decent people, respond to that kind of situation, and that's what you take as your ethical guidance. We rely upon our own feelings. We rely upon popular opinion. So much of our, our ethics is um, unwittingly formed by the, um, the TV set. We see the way um, ethical situations are handled on the evening news, and uh, we easily imbibe that value system and set of priorities and way of responding to things. Now what I'm getting at is that if the Bible is the word of righteousness, and that is the source of our ethical instruction, then we need to become more serious about studying it and making ethical decisions and not letting our decisions just be something that flows out of us uh, based on what we see around us. But there's another lesson here. Not only do we learn that the Bible is a word of righteousness, in verse um, 13 we read that one needs training in the word of righteousness. One needs skill. We must acquire skill in using God's word in making righteous decisions. It is not a pat and easy thing to use the Bible correctly. Now, I don't want to suggest that the Bible's only for eggheads, only for priests, only for those with that advanced training either. But what I, what I mean is you can't pick up the Bible and just use it in some um, uh, shallow, uneducated way. We see that all around us. I went to a Christian college in which Christian college there were still people who were making decisions by opening the Bible and expecting the Spirit of God to lead them to a verse that would tell them whether to go on a trip or not. And I'd like, you know, be nice to dismiss that as just one of the aberrant extremes that are around us. But it's not at all uncommon. People, I mean, how do, how do people who don't believe in just, you know, hunt and peck method, how do people who reject that use the Bible to learn to make ethical decisions? Well, often they, too, their devotions are totally aimless. They don't have any idea of the context of what they're reading or why they're reading or where this reading is taking them. People do not use skill in interpreting God's Word, and not just in these ways that I'm talking about. I mean, there are also outlandish interpretations of the Bible. You just wonder, how can people, you know, come to that? 
we're not under law, we're under grace. Meaning, we don't have to live by God's laws anymore. Now, the sad thing is, the mistaken interpretation of that verse uh, that I'm ridiculing here has become almost a platitude, an accustomed uh, an accepted way of looking at things in the evangelical world. And it's just outlandish in terms of any reading of Paul's meaning at that point. And so, I want to underline the fact we need to gain skill in using God's Word. We need to become literary experts in the Bible. But it's more than that. Verse 14 says, Not only must you see that the Bible is the source of your ethical authority, and secondly, gain a skill in using the Bible correctly. Verse 14 tells us we need to acquire experience in making correct applications of the Bible to our concrete situations. There are people who know how to use the Bible in a proper, uh, in, in a way that is uh, literarily proper. They know how to read it in context. They know how um, to gain uh, the uh, precise meaning or teaching of a text. But then you see it's another step to take that and say, now how does this come to application in my life, in this specific setting here? How does this apply to the world there? And the author of um, our book tells us in... Uh, here, let's try that, that sentence again. Um, <laughs> Uh, those who are mature, according to verse 14, and can tolerate solid food, are those who have their faculties trained by practice to discern good and evil. The analogy that the author is drawing here is uh, to an athlete who applies a single-minded self-discipline to his task. The athlete um, goes out and trains himself so that his muscles will grow and his, uh, his skill will improve, his moves will be just right. Uh, this is not the only time the author likens the Christian life to an athletic contest uh, or the work of an athlete. In Hebrews 12:1, the author also says, Therefore, let us also, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with diligence the race that is set before us, looking into Jesus. So the author sees the Christian life as one of athletic performance. And what does the athlete do? Well, he runs with diligence toward his goal in chapter 12. But here in chapter 5, the athlete trains himself. Solid food is for, uh, well, my translation has full-grown men, you could have uh, for those who are actually, the, the Greek says, those who are perfect, which is intended as a relative remark, uh, uh, being more mature than others, those who are further along toward the goal of the Christian life. Anyway, uh, solid food is for the mature, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. The word um, senses, or in your translation maybe faculties, refers to senses of perception. 
and figuratively then to spiritual sensitivity. The uh, English word that we get from the Greek word, this will help some of you, maybe not all, is aesthetics. It says you have your senses, you have your aesthetics exercised. Um, and these are developed through training and use, just like muscles are developed through training and use. The word for exercised or trained uh, comes from the Greek word for gymnasium. And so our aesthetics are going to be developed in the gymnasium. That's a very loose translation. <laughs> but <laughs> what happens is that by constant exercise of a certain muscle or sense of perception, it gets stronger and more acute. It gets uh, sharper. It's more reliable. And it's... Uh, what this verse is telling us, I think, explains the desire that all of us have to receive advice from older Christians whom we see as wiser than we are. You see, we know, even without this verse having told us, that they've acquired a skill through constant use of God's Word and applying it to particular situations in their lives. They have a certain skill to apply God's Word so that when we want a wise a piece of guidance, we go to them, we trust them for that. And you know, it's interesting that uh, such people may have a reliable feeling about what is right or wrong in a given circumstance without looking up a particular proof text for it. And that shouldn't bother us. You know why? Because the Bible says that their senses are mature. They're well-trained. There are some people who have used the Word of God so constantly that it's just, as we say, has become part of them. So that when they look at a situation, say an awkward social situation, and say the godly thing to do here is that, it's not that they lack a biblical direction in that. It's that they haven't needed to look up a particular verse to know that that's what the Bible teaches it's just become part of their way of seeing things. They now discern good and evil with a much better sensibility than we do. And that's what we should all be looking for. We should be looking for the day when we can take solid food, God's Word, and advanced doctrine, and have so used it constantly that it's become part of us. That we can discern good and evil by that Word of Righteousness. And people would look to us for direction because of that ability. Well, now we come to chapter 6. Now. The author says, Therefore, leaving the doctrine of the first principles of Christ, let us press on unto maturity or perfection, depending on your translation. Let us press on unto maturity, not laying again a foundation of many lists, six different doctrines that he's going to talk about. Because of their arrested growth, because of uh, the dullness of their doctrinal comprehension, and because of their undeveloped ethical discernment, the readers are now exhorted to do something about their condition, to take steps toward intelligent, competent Christian living as adults. I, I really appreciate it. The author doesn't just describe the situation and say, you know, we have a lot of people who have become really dull of hearing. We have others who aren't. 
And he goes on. And he says, it's all of you, press on. Don't accept this situation. Don't take it laying down. Become spiritually mature. In verse 1, he exhorts them to press on. They've got to do something. In verse 3, what does he do? He says it all depends upon God's sovereign care. Uh, you're just going to have to get used to that. The Bible doesn't feel any tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. On the one hand, the author says, it's your responsibility, press on. He turns right around and says, and this will do if God permits. It's all dependent upon the will of God. God controls all things. That uh, verse, by the way, in this will we do if God permits, should not be seen as just some kind of shallow a piece of uh, piety on the part of the author. Uh, if you look at uh, James, the uh, fourth chapter, verses 13 to 15, notice that James says, we shouldn't even tell people we're going on a trip without qualifying it by saying, if God permits. That is to say, if it's in the will of God. We should, as Christians, always be recognizing that whatever we accomplish or whatever we do is dependent upon the sovereignty of God and His plan. We have to constantly give credit to God for being the one who supervises all things. Okay, but let's come back to the issue now. The author exhorts them, realizing that, of course, it's the underlying sovereignty of God that will make it possible. The author exhorts them to take steps in Christian living, to become adults. And he speaks here of something called the elementary doctrines of Christ, or literally, the word of the beginning of Christ. The very um, earliest doctrines of the Christian life. Uh, these correspond to what he called in chapter 5, verse 12, the first principles of God's word, or milk for babies. In uh, verse 1, he later calls these things the foundation of Christian theology. We need to press on to maturity. And if we're going to do that, that calls for leaving the elementary doctrines of Christ. And does leaving here mean abandoning those doctrines? No. Of course, he means going beyond those doctrines. We need uh, to use those doctrines as a springboard rather than a stopping point for our Christian development. And what are these doctrines? Well, he lists them under six heads. Repentance, faith, baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection, and judgment. Um, it's not unlikely these are meant to be read in three pairings. Repentance and faith, baptisms and laying on of hands, resurrection, and judgment. But it's not essential to do that, but they do tend to flow that way. What are each one of these? I'll be very brief about it so we can conclude tonight's lesson. First, repentance from dead works. Remember how John the Baptist preached in Luke, the third chapter, that those who are to be baptized must do the works meet for repentance? Repentance from dead works means having a life that's turned around and producing the fruits appropriate to genuine repentance. Jesus taught the same thing in Luke 13, verses 3 to 9, when he said that repentance must lead to a changed life. It was a mainstay of apostolic preaching 
the men had to repent. We see that on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and we see it in Acts 3, verse 19. We see it in the preaching of and teaching of Paul in Acts 20, verse 21, and Acts 20, verse, excuse me, Acts 26, verse 20. Um, these are things you might look up when you go home tonight, since we don't have time in our lesson to do so. Repentance is crucial. It's fundamental. Now, do you want to see how bad the Christian church is today? Let's just start right here. The author says, this is milk. He says, this is just the ABCs of the Christian life. This is something you need to press beyond. But how many churches preach repentance? How many evangelical churches believe that the doctrine of repentance should be preached? I don't know. It's probably less than 10%. Uh, what you have, it seems to me, is an easy believism that is preached throughout the Christian church today. The idea that you have faith in Christ and that saves you. The idea of confessing your sins and turning from them in abject sorrow is, uh, well, that's old-fashioned. I mean, that, that's what revivalists preach. I mean, and we don't like to touch that. It makes people uncomfortable. In an age interested in self-esteem, you're not going to tell people to repent. Bob? Well, according to our confession of faith, yes. But the evangelical doctrine of repentance is to be, you know, is a doctrine that is to be preached in the church. Um... What I mean by evangelical here is someone who believes that the work of Jesus Christ is our only way of being right with God. Um, if repentance is preached, it's certainly soft pedal. You see, you're, you're, you're a preacher that's hard to listen to if you preach repentance. People don't like to have, you know, a, a sense of guilt to come out where they have to cry out to God, I am so unclean, forgive me, cleanse me. But, you see, I don't think you can understand faith toward God if you haven't first understood repentance from dead works. Let me add now that it's repentance from dead works. Why does he say that, from dead works? It's not just repentance from evil works, but from dead works. That language of dead works is crucial because the Pharisees performed what they thought were good works before God. The Judaizers... Um, propounded the idea that there are certain works that should be done to gain favor with God. And the author says, the elementary doctrine of the Christian faith is repentance from those dead works. He's not talking about, I don't think, he's talking about repentance from such things as uh, uh, gossiping and adultery and things like that. They may be in the background. He's talking about repentance from our self-righteousness. Repentance from the best we can offer to God, which according to Isaiah is filthy rags. You see that if you look at chapter 9, verse 14, where he uses the expression again, in connection with the work of Christ, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, there's nothing you could offer to God, and all these good things you thought you did were nothing but dead works in his eyes. And only the blood of Christ can cleanse you. So repentance from dead works. Secondly, faith toward God. That, of course, is the positive side of true repentance. And we need to learn that. People have not truly repented if they don't have faith in God. 
It is not enough for a person to engage in some kind of a moral rearmament in his own strength to say, oh, I'm, just, I'm really tired of telling so many lies or of being unfaithful to my wife. I'm going to clean up my life. That's not repentance. Repentance is being heartbroken over your sins and calling out to God for salvation from them. If you turn back to yourself because you're so sorry your life is messed up, you're not showing faith toward God. You're not showing true repentance. You're just depending on yourself all over again. More dead works are about to follow, friends. And so repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Interestingly, in the New Testament, Christians are known as believers because they have faith in God. That's what they're known for. Why doesn't the text say faith in Christ, by the way? Well, I think very simply because Christ is God. It's not necessary for it to say that. But maybe more importantly, as John 14, 6 tells us, it's through Christ that we are restored to God that uh, the author is indicating that it's faith. the faith we have in Christ is ultimately faith toward God. Faith in his promises through Christ, also faith that we are made right with him in the work of Christ. Hebrews 11.6 tells us more about faith. In fact, the whole chapter 11 is on faith. But without faith it is impossible to be well-pleasing unto him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that seek after him. Two elementary doctrines of the Christian faith then. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God. Secondly, instructions about baptisms. We could take a half hour discussing all the interpretations. Why is the word baptism or washings here put in the in a gender other than what it usually is found in in the New Testament when referring to Christian baptism? And secondly, why is it in the plural? Some of the possibilities, well, refers to a plurality of persons being baptized. Eh, not a very good idea, I think refers to um, baptizing them, you know, sprinkling them or effusing them three times. So baptism. But, of course, that would be three parts of one baptism rather than three baptisms. Some have thought it, talked about preparatory washings leading up to baptism. Others have seen it as referring to baptism of fire, tears, desire, and blood, all of which were discussed in the Patristic Fathers. Um, or maybe a better uh, suggestion, although it's not the one I prefer, that it refers to various ceremonial washings under the Old Covenant, the baptisms of the Old Covenant, as that word is used in Hebrews 9, verse 10, also in Mark 7, verses 4 and 8. The idea would be then, the elementary instruction is how our cleansing now comes in Christ as a fulfillment of all that the Old Testament looked forward to. Uh, especially with the Qumran community, uh, the Dead Sea sect, having such an emphasis upon washings and purifications, that could well be an elementary point of Christian teaching in the early church, uh, how our purity comes from Christ. But I think the, the right answer, uh, not that there isn't value in this last one, but the, the, the best possibility is that baptisms is in the plural because of the varieties of baptisms known to First Testament Jews. They practiced the baptism of proselytes. Then there was the baptism of John. Then, of course, the baptism of Jesus. And then finally, Jesus himself speaks of another kind of baptism, 
baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm saying early Christians were taught about that. Indeed, we have an example of instruction in baptisms found in Acts, the 19th chapter, where Paul comes to some who had only known the baptism of John. And he explains them the baptism of Jesus and gives them the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so there is an instance of instruction in baptism, something that would have been understood. Next, laying on of hands. Uh, early Christians were taught the significance of that, something that accompanied baptism and the reception of the Holy Spirit in some cases in the New Testament, but not always. You need to understand that was not some kind of automatic ritual that brought to the Holy Spirit. Uh, other times it was a rite used as an act of blessing and healing and was used in the ordaining ceremony of uh, setting people apart to church office, laying on of hands. And then finally the author comes to elementary Christian eschatology, the doctrine of resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, what we can expect at the end of history. This we see expounded in the New Testament in passages like 1 Corinthians 15. Paul goes into great lengths uh, to ex goes to great lengths to explain the resurrection that will be ours at the end of this age. And then in 2 Peter 3 of the final judgment, we read of the apostle giving elementary instruction as well. Okay, so my point is that here are these six things the author says are just the foundation of Christian theology. And today, I wonder if we're even up to the foundation, you know, in our day. To understand baptism correctly, you know, repentance from dead works, whether that's preached as an evangelical doctrine among us, faith in God, uh, laying on of hands, resurrection from the dead, and the eternal judgment of God that is to come. The author says, press on beyond these things. Don't lay that foundation over it. And then he comes to verse 4, which is one of the most frightening verses in all the Bible, which we're going to take up at the beginning of our next lesson and try to finally uh, come to a conclusion as to what it means. He says, For touching people who were once enlightened, etc., etc., it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. The author says, If you have become dull of hearing, so that you're so far that you don't even know the ABCs of the Christian faith, you're in a position of apostatizing from God in such a way that it will never be forgiven. Okay, Bob? Well, that, I think that will come up more after we expound the text next time. First of all, let's understand what he means. It's impossible to renew them again. Questions about tonight's lesson, Ron? No, this is not real important, but I don't you separated the six categories into the actual three categories of Thursday and Christmas concerning cleansing, laying on hands, resurrection, and judgment. What do we feel about that? You turn it into pairs. Yeah, I'm, it's, it's popular among commentators to cut them into pairs, but that schematism is something that I've seen as well, where you have three foundational things. You have repentance, faith, various teachings about then you have baptisms, laying on, laying on of hands, resurrection, and judgment. I think, you know, it's like cutting a birthday cake. There's no one right way to do it. It serves different purposes at different times, do it different ways. The point is he lists these six items as he takes as typical of elementary Christian teaching.
Anything else? Okay, then I'm going to close with one, one comment. This person is no longer in our church, and I wouldn't want to mention them uh, one way or another by name anyway. But I was once told by a, a member of our church that the reason she didn't want to come to our Bible studies is she said, Dr. Bonson, you're just too detailed in your teaching. And she actually said that. Now, of course, the teacher wants to hear that too. Am I, you know, not communicating with my audience? Am I so far, you know, down the line that they're not able to catch up? And that's a bad thing to do. But it wasn't just that you need to slow down for a while. What this person was saying is, I don't like Bible studies where we get into a lot of detail. I like these ones that are just big overviews, you know, just real general sorts of things. Well, you may not be in that position. You may not say that tonight. In fact, the very fact that you come out to our Bible studies, I think, shows that you don't uh, agree with that because you know what you're going to get when you come to hear one of my Bible studies. Um, but I wonder if we don't nevertheless have a similar problem in that we'll say that we want detailed understanding, but then how much study do we put into the Scriptures? How much... How, how, do we diligently make ourselves students of God's Word, or do we have to be pushed to do that? Uh, do you get up every day and say, now, when can I get some Bible study scheduled into my day? My guess is, we I know I do this. I get up and I say, i got to do this, got to do that, so forth, and then Bible study becomes, on many occasions, an afterthought, doesn't it? Let's press on. Let's not become dull of hearing. Let's, uh, if we want detailed instruction, if we want to be mature in the faith, then let's start seeking that solid food and don't expect it to be crammed down our throats. Okay, let's have a word of prayer before going. Jim, would you pray? Father in heaven, how we thank you, Lord, that you have given us this evening to look into your word. We thank you for the author of Hebrews and for the use that you have made of him. But he does remind us, Lord, that we are not to be going over and over again just the beginnings of your word, but rather to look deeply into it and to know how your word is to be applied to every area of life and how all of the problems that we see throughout the world indeed can be solved by the application of the principles in this book. Lord, we sometimes pray that you would show us those principles, and we ask that without wanting to do all the hard work to discover them in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us greater will to do that discovery work, even realizing that in every effort that we make, it only can result if it be your will that we would learn. Open our eyes, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.